Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. Reverend Dr. Aaron Rafferty is a practical theologian uh, who does research in all kinds of areas, working with the Institute of Youth Ministry and serving at Princeton Theological Seminary and Princeton University. Uh, And you've also recently published this book, From Inclusion to Justice. and uh, I've been reading it. It is an, an, an awesome work. It's been challenging for me uh, and so helpful. Uh, so you've published widely on disability, youth ministry, congregational leadership. You're an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church, uh, and you have a PhD in cultural anth- anthropology from Princeton, and you're a proud parent of a daughter with multiple disabilities. Thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight. And And I would ask to start, if you could tell us a bit about your spiritual journey and and how it relates to to who you are now and and how you show up in the world today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So, my spiritual journey. So, um I grew up in a Presbyterian household in Wisconsin, but I when I tell that story, I always like to talk about how my parents um before they had kids did not attend a church. My dad um was like the youngest of four and like his siblings got confirmed and stuff. But by the time they got to him, they were like, what do you want to do? And he's like, I don't care. And so like, (laughs) he was, you know, like the baby that sort of got left behind out of all the church traditions actually was never even baptized. And then my mom grew up Catholic and that really didn't work well for her. So when they had kids, they had said, okay, we really want to figure out a tradition that works for, for us. So they went to like all these churches and they're really different. My dad is really um, conservative and my mom's really liberal. So they were like, what tradition has kind of a agree to disagree mentality and the Presbyterians like that's a big part of what we always say that we agree to disagree so they felt that they um, could find a spiritual home in the Presbyterian church so it's a very special that's why I kind of stay Presbyterian is because my parents chose it for me very intentionally and it's not perfect but um, there's been a lot of wonderful things in being part of that tradition and in fact I was baptized with my two sisters and my dad all at the same time. And so that's always, yeah, like a very, like, obviously I don't remember it, but my mom tells the story that, you know, it's her whole family up there getting baptized at the same time. So um, I grew up in the church. I was fascinated as a young kid with different cultures and languages. And so that's why I ended up studying anthropology um, in college. And then I went to seminary. I had a scholarship to go to seminary. And it was actually this really cool scholarship. I hope they still have these where, um, if someone wasn't thinking about seminary, but they had like friends around them that thought that they had gifts for seminary, they could like nominate this person. So my college roommate nominated me and I was like, me? Oh no, whatever. Uh, And I was actually dating this guy at the time who um, didn't believe that women should be pastors. And so I was kind of like having this spiritual crisis. Like I had grown up in this tradition that was affirming of women in ministry, but you know, this guy seemed really, um, strong. He was Southern Baptist and his beliefs that this was, you know, not, um, not correct. So I was like scouring the scriptures, like trying to read everything. Like, what does Jesus say about this? Like, am I doing the wrong thing? Is this okay? And then in that process was like, oh, I really believe that God does call women into ministry. Maybe God even is calling me into ministry. And so went to Princeton Seminary, um, 
I was, while I was in seminary, I was like, why are there so few classes on culture in seminary? You know, I was the anthropologist. I spoke Spanish. I like worked on the US-Mexico border. I was like, I thought this was going to be like a ton of hands-on <laughs> ministry. And all we're doing is talking about church history and theology. So I started taking classes at Princeton University um, and ended up going straight into my PhD after my um, master's in divinity. And then ended up, uh, I had gotten married and my husband um, was already attending a Spanish speaking church with me that he does not speak Spanish. So he was basically like, I am not going to go with you to Mexico like you want to do for your research. Like I was like, I want this marriage to work. So he had had an interest previously, he had spent some time in China. And I watched a um, documentary about foster families and was so interested in these foster families that were fostering children who were mostly adopted abroad and was like who could do this like how could people you know do this over and over because these women fostered many children and so I decided to learn Chinese and then went to China I wrote a whole nother book on that (laughs) Um, but that was really formative for me um, both as a scholar and a Christian because I didn't expect that the foster families I met in China would be raising disabled children like all of the children they were raising were, excuse me, disabled. And so <clears throat> that's the first time that I really started to think about um, people with disabilities. And at the same time, my husband and I were thinking about um, whether we wanted to start a family. And we were watching these foster families love these children with disabilities. And we thought, like, we want to love someone that much. And so we ended up um, coming back from China. And then that's I had my daughter and she was born with a progressive um, genetic disease of the brain. It was a total surprise to us. It's so, so rare that it's nothing they test for. And it took us a very long time um, to get that diagnosis. But when I look back on this like journey, I can see that God was really preparing us for the child that we were going to have. And in fact, so much so that it was very difficult navigating these health challenges with her and watching her suffer. But when we learned that she would be disabled, I mean, we weren't upset we were like she's just like the children we loved in China you know great here we go and so it's I've kind of felt that this has been my next sort of adventure in terms of experiencing life with her um life to God when I became a pastor but then I remember like the moment where I um realized like I wasn't gonna be able to go back to China yeah I was sitting in my at my desk in in Princeton and kind of thinking like you know, I already devoted my life to God in terms of my ministry. I was like, I guess, God, you can have my scholarship too, which I realized like I was kind of hanging on to like that part of my identity, you know, like I choose what I study God and God showed me, I feel like a better way in terms of um, really being able to study ministry with people with disabilities and congregations. So now that's what I do. Um, That's kind of the focus of my both my research interests and um, my pastoral ministry as well. Wow. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, so uh, for those who have not read your book, um, could you tell us a little bit about why you wrote it and maybe what are your hopes for readers, what they might gain um, as they read it? Yeah. So um, I don't want to scare anybody, but the reason that I wrote the book is because I, kept getting asked for a book that people could read to kind of introduce them to congregational ministry with people with disabilities. And I 
couldn't really find a book to recommend. So I wrote one. Um, so if that happens to you at some point, this may be your lot in life as well. Um, but yeah, I, I was teaching at um, Princeton Seminary. And so I would get a lot of kind of requests from students, but also pastors, you know, what are some good resources in this area? And I was noticing that like the books were either really like intellectual and really theological, um, or they were like really, really practical, um, but maybe lacking some of that theological rigor. Um, and so that was one reason. And then the other thing that you'll notice about my book is it's based on um, ethnographic research. So it's based on research with 11 different um, congregations in our area, in the New York, New Jersey, you know, Philadelphia area. And that's another thing that I felt was important is I was reading a lot of books about um, disability ministry where you just like don't actually see a lot of people or hear a lot of stories or hear about churches. And I really wanted to, I mean, my method of study is to listen well to people and to value what they say and what they do. And so I wanted to do a study that took seriously what was going on in, in ministry today. Um, and then another reason was that I, as we started to do this research, I realized that um, inclusion uh, was seemed like a stumbling block, actually, in ministry, which was quite a puzzle because it just sounds so good <laughs> in terms of like being inclusive or inclusion. But I was, um, from my own experience, uh, being a parent of a disabled child and also being a pastor, I have really had to come like face to face with my own ableism. And so I noticed that a lot of um, books about um, disability are written by people who identify as non-disabled or able-bodied, um, and they aren't talking about ableism. And I was feeling like we really needed a book that um, kind of does for um, able-bodied Christians what a lot of really great books recently have done for white Christians and really externalizing, okay, what is ableism and how does it work? And then like helping us to come to terms with this. And so I thought, you know, maybe I can write this as somebody who is a, a parent, right? I'm not a disabled person myself. Um, and in my relationship with my daughter, I just kind of keep like butting up against my own ableism and it, it sucks, frankly, like it's really hard and it's really upsetting. But I also think it's a really important story to tell. So I thought, okay, if I can kind of like tell these two stories together, like weave my own um, experience with my own ableism together with some of these insights from like a incredible, and if you're reading the book, you'll see them incredible disabled leaders in the church. Um, maybe we can learn something, you know, about God and ministry. So that's sort of where it's coming from. And just before I like move any further, or we move any further, I just want to say, so if you're not familiar with the term ableism, um, ableism is the, the fact that like, if you look around our society, everything is set up for people who are not disabled. So everything is kind of catered to this idea of someone who can, you know, walk and talk and move in typical ways and think even, right? Think is a big part of it when we think about people, um, you know, with ADHD or autism. So, and it, once you start to notice ableism, you kind of like can't unsee it. So um, one example of this, and again, it's not a bad thing. It's just simply that there's this pervasive bias. Um, and sometimes it makes disabled people, you know, feel really unwelcome and things that are really challenging for them is like sometimes in church, we say, 
you know, please stand for the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and obviously if you're somebody that can't stand, you're like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> yeah. um, and so just subtle things like that, or even in my classroom, sometimes when um, I will ask extemporaneous questions and just like call on students. Like if you're someone who has um, anxiety, clinical anxiety, that can be really, really uncomfortable for you. So there's, you know, ways that, you know, obviously in a classroom setting, we can try to include different ways of learning and multimodal learners. Um, but I just want to make sure I didn't like steamroll through that concept because it, it is new to lots of people. And I give lots of examples in the book, but um, it's just something that I, I think like racism and sexism, we've got to talk about. Yeah, I, and I found it really, really helpful in your book as you kind of brought this up, because I think it is a, a new concept for a lot of folks. And and it's also a concept that that I, I think can be a little overwhelming at first, because you, you start to open your eyes to it and you're like, how do we make enough changes? And so this isn't a question we sent to you, but like, as you begin to speak with churches and, and speak with church leaders, um, how have you seen people begin to react to that and create space for it? Because I think that immediate reaction of is, okay, this is everywhere. How do we fix it? Maybe isn't the most helpful reaction, but it's, I think it's a natural one. So how have you seen churches approach it? Well, there are a couple um, examples in the book that, you know, come to mind. Um, one is, and actually I'm, I'm going to this joyful noise service uh, this weekend with my Lutheran friends, which is, is a lovely example of this. So um, there's a church, uh, there's a couple church, Lutheran churches in New Jersey that host what they call our, their joyful noise services. So they're services that are meant to be friendly toward children um, who are neurodivergent. So children on the autism spectrum, children with ADHD, but other children with other disabilities as well. So it's really trying to be kind of disability friendly. And um, one of the reasons that uh, service developed is because there were a couple parents um, that felt that they were really struggling to bring their kids to church. And when they were in the traditional service, people were constantly remarking that their children were too loud or disruptive, or, I mean, a lot of children who have autism uh, will stim. So they'll like flap their hands or something like that. And um, I, I, I'll say in a minute, I, you know, I think all of these things actually should be quite welcome in church, but um, when they're not welcome, um, having a separate space where folks can, um, worship together has been really, really meaningful. So what's important about this story is it's led by um, disabled children and their families. And so they saw a need for something like this. And then this church was willing to host this service. So one of the um, pieces of advice that I will give to churches is to start with listening. So start with listening to disabled people. But sometimes for churches that don't have a lot of disabled people in their congregation, they're like, okay, well then, like, obviously we're done here because there's no one to listen to. And I'm like, hey, not so fast. So um, if you, you might have uh, disabled uh, activism groups or uh, dis disabled, like homes for disabled people in your community. And so then those are places where you could go and listen to people. But the other like kind of piece that I'm pointing out with this joyful noise service is to become a host of um, be, a, be a host, like use your space to support disabled people and disabled leadership and activism and ministry. And this is an example of that because this church could have said to these parents, like, why can't you just like get your kids to behave like everybody else in the typical service or um, 
you know, we don't need to do this because we already have worship. Like what, what's your problem? But they, they didn't, right. They didn't react from a place of being offended. They acted, reacted from a place of care and compassion and were like, we'll help you start this service. Like this sounds great. Um, and then, you know, it's amazing because it's a service that attracts um, people from outside of their community as well, who feel welcome in a distinct way in this service. And I can tell you more about the service. I mean, it has like, they have like a prayer rope that goes down the aisle when they say the Lord's prayer and everybody holds mm-hmm. onto it. So this is an example of access where like, maybe you can't say the words of the Lord's prayer, but you can hold the rope in some way or touch the rope in some way. So it kind of expands access mm-hmm. um, with all these things. But so I think it's, you know, being listening to what people need and trusting them right when they say what they need and not reacting I think defensively because again out of our ableism like we might say oh well how can you possibly need that or why do you need that right and then the the story that I like to tell and that I tell a bit more in the book is how what is happening in this church is that this joyful noise service it's not just like staying contained and then they have their traditional worship service the spirit is like moving in this joyful noise service in a way that is actually disrupting and I think beautifully disrupting the traditional worship service. So one Sunday at the joyful noise service, um, this pastor uh, invited um, a child to help her serve communion. And she said it was amazing because this kid like knew all the words and and helped her. And it was so lovely because she just like didn't have a communion assistant. So she asked this kid to do it. And all these children at the joyful noise service saw that and they were like, why can't we do that? And they, then they went back to the regular worship service and were like, why can't we do that here? And then they started, you know, assisting with communion. And so like, what I argue in the book is that these disabled led spaces are spaces that God can use to kind of shake up some of the ways that we do things. And that like this ministry and leadership is powerful and it's important to God and it's important for it to grow and flourish. And if it can't do that in some of these typical spaces, well, then the best thing I think you can do is just like water it, you know, (laughs) Um, and receive it, right? Like, I think that's a lot of the book is about receiving the ministry and leadership of disabled people. So that, that would be, that's like one example that comes to mind. Um, I have one more, but I don't need to say it. If I don't know if you have another question, I don't want to. Sure, but I feel like you have to tell us now. Yeah. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the the other one, and I don't know, um, Evan, if you've read through this point in the book, but it comes fairly early in the book. There's a um church uh, called well, actually, you guys might know it, Saint John Chrysostom. I don't know if you know. Um, it's a Catholic parish, um, and they're outside of Philadelphia as well. So, um they are doing really a wonderful ministry with disabled people. I learned so much from them. They ended up kind of through um, just, just like falling into it, <laughs> hosting something that I call in the book, I call listening groups where um, their uh, priest was noticing that a lot of the families with um, disabled children were just like not coming to mass. And so he started, you know, asking them when he would see them, like, Hey, you know, what's going on? We haven't seen you in a while. Like, are you okay? And and they were kind of like letting on that, like it was a difficult place for them to be. So he gathered them and just said, like, we want to know what's not working for you. Like, tell us, tell us what's not working. And then they just listened. And in these groups, they didn't like try to correct them or cajole them. <laughs> they just listened. Um, and it reminds me 
um, so much of, of the Psalms and how sometimes we just cry out to God, right? And God is so patient <laughs> to just listen. And um, the, like it, in lament, we really need someone to hear it. You know, it's, um, it's so hard, right? When you're, you're like in your room crying by yourself and you're like, God, where are you, right? So just being a recipient, right? And holding some of that hurt and that pain is so meaningful. And again, I think it's hard because like we're sensitive, we're human beings. Like we're like, oh, I want to say like, no, that's not who the church is. But I offer some advice for folks who are listening to say, I'm so sorry the church hurt you that way, right? Like even if it wasn't your church that hurt them, the fact is like this this person, this family was hurt by the church. And so it's such a holy opportunity to apologize and to listen well, and that that kind of like can form the foundation um, of a conversation uh, that will hopefully move towards um, ministry together. Because I think that, I think lament is really powerful and that it doesn't just allow um, disabled people. And I, I should be clear, like disabled, I'm not talking about disabled people sharing their frustrations with being disabled. I'm sharing, they're sharing their frustrations with a world that is like discriminating against them. Um, and so when they're sharing those frustrations, like I think the Holy Spirit like works in the hearers <laughs> to move our hearts towards repentance. And so that was like this amazing kind of movement that I was observing in the book about how when disabled people are crying out like that, often in the church, we want to like sort of like protect the church from the critiques. And we even maybe like want to protect God, like, no, 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 like, that's not what God is like, but like God can take it, right? <laughs> so um, I think it's just this wonderful way to be present to each other's cries for help. Um, and then in that way, I feel like we start to like come closer together and move together um, in ministry. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for the extra example. It's so helpful. Um, this next question is, as, as you've talked about inclusion being a hurdle and, and the goal is to move towards justice. What do you think is at stake for the church, capital C church, as we try to try to move from inclusion to a place of justice? I mean, I think like everything is at stake <laughs> um, because I think inclusion um, is such a poor uh, substitute for the gospel. <laughs> so I, I think, and, and I talk a lot about this in the book, like, and, and the reason I beat up on inclusion is because I don't, um, beat up on the church. Like I don't fault the church. Like we swim in a culture of inclusion. So then we just go in terms of supporting, um, and being in ministry with disabled people, we just do it the same way you know, our common culture does it. So even like I talk, I go through the Americans with Disabilities Act in the book, and I talk about the way in which this method of kind of um, applying for accommodations, uh, what it does is it doesn't actually start to dismantle the power inequalities and the hierarchies between non-disabled people and disabled people. And if you look at the statistics in America, like disabled people remain disproportionately unemployed and poor. Um, and it's not because they don't have, you know, gifts to give. It's because this system that we have of inclusion and accommodations is actually not serving them. I think it's serving institutions in power. So that's why I'm saying everything that's at stake because of the church, as the church, like we don't want to be yet another one of those institutions in power that's served by this process. Like we serve a Jesus who came 
to dismantle power, right? And to usher in this upside down kingdom. So I feel like moving toward the work of justice is moving towards the kingdom of God. And so in the book, I talk about following Jesus toward justice rather than remaining kind of in this worldly paradigm of inclusion. And I give some examples about kind of how inclusion does this work of subtly shoring up power in the hands of people who are able-bodied that it doesn't actually kind of make the change we're hoping for. So that's why I begin with listening and I, you know, invite us into this move towards lament. And then I invite us into, um, nurturing disabled ministry. So an example of that could be the joyful noise ministry, like wherever disabled ministry is happening for able-bodied Christians to, to nurture it and support it. Um, and then ultimately being really open to the leadership of disabled people. And, um, so I, and I, somebody asked me, I was with another church recently and they were like, so yeah, what, what does justice look like? And I was like, well, I want to know. I don't know. You know, so <laughs> that's the thing that's a little frustrating about the book, right? Is like we know what inclusion looks like. It's not good enough, and then we want to move toward justice. But ultimately, like I think justice is the kingdom of God, and we know that the kingdom of God, like here on earth, is is not the final kind of kingdom of God <laughs> that we're all hoping for. So it doesn't mean like we don't keep working toward it, but that's why I put the emphasis on following Jesus toward justice, because sometimes I even think our ideas of what justice looks like need to be like decolonized. <laughs> um, like I think that, and, and I talk about this in my own circumstances. So I'm a white parent of a white child with uh, multiple disabilities. But what I have learned about the disabled people's movement in the United States is that it was disproportionately white. In fact, it was exclusive um, and it really uh, pushed out black and brown and queer people. And so it wasn't until recently that um, a movement took place that's called the disability justice movement. So there's a really intentional kind of, again, connection there with justice. And I talk about this movement in the book. Um, and so even the idea of justice that the disabled people's movement had in the United States was really impoverished because it didn't have these other points of view. It wasn't this intersectional, it wasn't justice for all, right? It was justice for, for some. And so then that's been a really hard pill to swallow. You know, I mean, we're talking about ableism, but then there's all these people who are white disability activists who are saying, oh my gosh, you mean I've been like racist and sexist and now I have to, you know, I have to come around on that. And so what's so cool about the disability justice movement is it is intersectional in nature. And it's really thinking about the ways in which like all of our fate is kind of intertwined with each other. And it talks a lot about the importance of the most impacted person um, by disability. So that would be somebody like my daughter who can't like speak or walk or move purposefully, like th that person would be at the center of this movement. And so we're trying, so like that, this movement is trying to make space for people for whom society would typically like never take seriously, assume that they don't have anything to contribute. Um, but because this movement is made up of people who were previously left, left out, like they get it. <laughs> so to me, I see like a glimmer of hope, like a glimmer of the kingdom of God in this movement. It's just so radical and so profound and so challenging to me too. Like I'm not at the heart of it, right? Like, um, 
but then I that's what I like to talk about in the book is like glimmers of the kingdom like what I may be telling sounds like kind of bad in terms of like oh the church is really struggling to do this but then throughout my research like I saw all these disabled leaders that God was using right despite ableism in the churches and lifting up and so um I think like when I think about what this looks like I think about churches that are not just like filled with disabled people who have like spaces that work for them, right? We all have these like heavy wooden pews and all of that. And we're thinking about architecture, but I think about churches where like a disabled person is in the pulpit, like mm-hmm. preaching. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think about the old, you know, churches where like ministry is bubbling up from the gifts of disabled people because the church has made space to receive them. So it is a very like, um, yeah, it's an already not yet kind of thing, right? In that, like, Jesus has, you know, given us this vision, and yet there's there's so much there's so much more to be done. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and I just think about like your experiences you were sharing with us about wrestling with like women in ministry, and there's some of that similar thing. Like, how do we just create space so people can see the gifts represented by people like them? And there's just so much power in that, so much of the kingdom. So. Thank you. So since you've written this book, have there been like other questions or ideas that, that kind of have bubbled up or you've been thinking through as maybe a, a follow-up or, or or things that have come out of conversations that you've having that you've been having about the book since? Well, I am I was like follow-up. Gosh, I like just started. I'm tired. <laughs> I don't want to write another book. But um I, I say that, but then I'm doing I'm doing an interview project right now with um Christians in the United States living with chronic illness and long COVID. Mm. Um, And I, we've only done, I have a research assistant. It's a very small grant. We're doing 20 interviews. I think we've done like four or five or six interviews. And it's already just been so amazing. Um, It's been, it's, you know, these are just folks that don't often get invited to tell their story and yet who have so much wisdom (laughs) Um, that pastors especially, but I think all of us in churches, um, you know, need to hear. And this is one of the things that I noticed during the pandemic is that, you know, disabled people were saying like, and many disabled people are also immunocompromised. There's like, you know, a big crossover between chronically ill and disabled people. And they were saying like, we know how to do this. Like we know how to organize online. We know how to like shelter. We know how to, you know, do all these things. And we just weren't, um, listening, right? We just weren't eager to receive their um, wisdom and insight. So I think that's where like my scholarship kind of continues to go is like trying to pay attention to what is pressing in our world. And also like, for me, it's always about like, enhancing the ministry of the church. It's kind of like, who do we need to hear from, you know, uh, in, in churches today. And I worry, and I had some of my own experiences of this during the pandemic, um, you know, that my family, my daughter is immunocompromised. So we really struggled to find ways to safely attend church. And so this, you know, online format has been such a boon for us. And that's what we're hearing from, um, chronically ill Christians is it's interesting. Like, I thought we were going to hear a lot of, um, complaints and frustrations, like, oh, I was left out, you know, when my church went back to in-person all this stuff. But what we just keep hearing is like, I'm so grateful for online worship and it's expanded my access. And so 
I I see like God working through our pandemic and like hearing these stories of like, you mean in the midst of the pandemic, somebody who's disabled, like access to church was expanded. Like that is astounding. <laughs> and that is a story that like, I want to tell to churches. Cause I think a lot of us are discouraged right now. And, you know, sometimes the mentality is like, Oh, well, Oh no, those people are never going to come back. And for the people we're talking to, like, well, they never really were able to come, you know, consistently in the first place. Like they, they have, you know, they have really severe health challenges, but to feel like now their access is expanded because if they can't attend one Sunday, they can attend online is just, um, is so meaningful, you know, to hear that. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm up to. And I think the other thing that um, I've been thinking a lot about is, so I just put out a curriculum with Princeton Seminary for youth workers who um, are in ministry with folks with uh, youth with ADHD, autism, other mental um, behavioral uh, conditions. And one of the things we learned from those young people is that sometimes in churches, like we kind of glorify this whole, like, we have to be all together, like doing the thing in unison. And like, otherwise it's like not good. And like, God doesn't say that, you know? (laughs) And so what I loved um, learning with these young people is that we can be together and like be doing different things and it can still be really faithful And so this is something that I do in my classroom often is like giving people multiple options of, you know, how they would engage with, um, you know, for us, it's like a a reading or a discussion, but for you all, it might be, you know, with scripture or with songs um, and appreciating the beauty in diversity, because I think when people have choices and options and when they're believed in terms of what works well for them, it works well for all of us. Like, <laughs> so these are the things that I, yeah, have been pretty excited about lately. That's so, that's so interesting and interesting to think about like how the spirit has worked in the midst of figuring out how to worship online and differently to help people. I think about like just recently, uh, several months ago I was preaching and there was a woman that I hadn't seen before in the front row with like an, her iPad, like up, like clearly watching the iPad and I didn't know what was going on. And now I met the family afterwards and found out she had a hearing disability, but was able to pull up our live stream and it had auto captions. And uh-huh. I was like, oh my gosh, like we didn't even know that we had auto captions on and look at how this is serving people in like a cool way um, that that we had no idea. And Right. And now you would be able done. to say if someone came into your church and, and said, I have this disability, I don't know how to connect because that person taught you, you could be right. like, oh, we've been through this, like this person. So yeah, I think I can, I, yeah, I just think there's so much wisdom there. Yeah. It's so helpful. Uh, so as you've written the book and and done this research, um, what, what has been revealed to you or reminded to you, um, about God, um, about yourself and humanity? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, I was reminded about God is God, hears the cries of those who are in need or distress. And, you know, going back to the pandemic, that was very much my family, (laughs) Um, is that we were really struggling in terms of feeling like we were left behind um, when people 
were um, removing their masks and, you know, kind of this gray area that we're, we're still in. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, I, I tell this story in the, in the book that there were several things that God like lifted up to me and showed me that God was there and that God could see us and God heard us. Um, and the first one was that um, my daughter continued to learn from home um, because she's immunocompromised. And the teacher that came to our house, um, who had never met my daughter, she showed up and we we were doing all of our school on our patio. (laughs) Um, And so she showed up on the patio and she met my daughter and she spent almost the entire first session, the first class session, telling my daughter how much everyone at school loves her and misses her. And that she knew she would love her because everyone else loves her too. Mm. And like, I thought that Jesus was on my patio. I just was like, that is absolutely what I needed to hear. And also like, not what a teacher needs to do. Like a teacher doesn't have to come and remind you that people love you. Um, But to me, I was like, wow, like, you know, God is really listening and is really finding ways to minister to our family, even in the midst of us, like not being able to attend church, God is here. Another example of that was um, our grocery store. I was just feeling really stressed out every time I went to the grocery store because, you know, now it's like people weren't wearing masks and whatever. And I was like, I just don't want to bring anything back to my daughter. So I called up the grocery store owner and I just said, you know, I know because this is like a local grocery store and like he knows everybody in the community. I was like, I just like love what you guys do in the community. Um, And I told him my story and he goes to me, well, what would it take for you and your family to feel safe? Mm -hmm. And I felt in that moment that like, again, that was Jesus like asking that. I just, I felt so cared for, which was shocking. I'm like getting pastoral care from the grocery store manager. (laughs) Um, And then he was like, this is something we can absolutely do. And he starts telling me, we will have a special, we will have special shopping hours on Monday and Thursday. And we'll put this sign and they like made this beautiful sign with this mask with this heart on it. You know, these shopping hours are for immunocompromised. And then I like posted it to our Facebook group, like just so people know, like in our neighborhood, you know, and everybody was like, I love this. Like I'm going to this. And, you know, like week after week, people show up on Monday and Thursday nights, like, and they wear their masks and, and all the grocery store workers wear their masks too. He was like, we can do this for you. And that just was like, so, so meaningful. And then the, the final example is a really cute example. Cause my daughter's eight and she has like cute little friends and my daughter loves Halloween. And so it was looking like she was going to miss Halloween. It's like, what are we going to do? And one of her friends, um, decided that they should do a couple's costume. <laughs> and um, so she she was the farmer and Lucia was the pumpkin and the pumpkin patch. But just like the ingenuity watching this friendship, because these two little girls met each other in kindergarten and their kindergarten was shut down like in spring 2020 for the pandemic. So they knew each other for like three or four months in school. And to watch this friendship like blossom during the pandemic, again, I felt like surely God is there. So I think... I, I mean, I really struggle sometimes. <laughs> um, and I, and when I hear the stories from my disabled, like siblings in Christ, I really struggle because I kind of feel um, so discouraged by, you know, all the ableism in our society. But when I see like how radically God is for 
disabled people. And I see God like working through, I mean, people like us, like grocery store manager. I like feel like this vision for justice is like a lot closer, I think, than we imagine. And then the other thing I said before about like God can take it. Um, in that chapter, I talk about how the my disabled siblings in Christ who are very critical of the church. And sometimes that criticism is received as is it was received poorly, right? As like whining or anger criticism. But like I think it's a form of love. Like you don't criticize something that you don't care about. You know, what I mean, you don't keep coming back to this place and saying, like, I wish this was a better experience for me if you're like, you're like, forget you, right? If you really don't care. So I saw them doing this and I saw them doing this like on Twitter. I mean, I just saw them doing this like in so many different um, avenues. And it really was invitational to me and my faith that like, even though I felt really isolated during the pandemic, like God wanted to hear what I had to say. And even the anger that I had, like God could take it. And if I threw it at God, maybe God would move me toward a place of greater connection. And that's that's when all of that stuff happened. <laughs> it's like after this like, period of like horrible event for me. And so like, I feel like I have experienced what I'm inviting people to in, in the book is that um, that's the the miracle of lament, right? It's like, we don't stay in the same place. Like if we really bear our souls to God. And I think for those of us who aren't experiencing suffering and pain, if we really walk with those who are experiencing suffering and pain, and we're really faithful to hear it, like God will move. So that that's something that I've learned. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, well, we want to open it up for Q&A for anybody, whether those are Zoom or in person. So if you have a question, just ask that you use the microphone if you're here in the room. When given an opportunity to speak, I try never to overlook that opportunity. Um, as everybody uh, except you, Aaron, knows, but you'll know now. <laughs> as I As I heard both your personal story and your academic, if you will, your author story. Um, I got wondering where you charge your batteries because it takes energy to be a caregiver for a loved one. And uh, and I, I wondered if you wanted to pursue that a little more, although these last illustrations were certainly boosts to seeing God at work. Um, it can be tiring. And it it can, uh, you know, you you do need that recharge of your batteries. And I wondered if you discovered any other ways by which that occurred. Thank you for that question. So I do think, again, I, I'm thinking of these folks that I've been talking to who live with uh, chronic illness and, you know, their bodies just tell them they have to stop. <laughs> So I, again, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, in listening to our bodies. And that's something that, you know, I feel like disabled people, again, it's like they don't have control over a lot of these things. And so they're having to rest, right? Or they're having to take breaks. But I think what I hear behind your question also is, is that we all need that, right? And um, would that we became a culture that celebrated rest? <laughs> so I, I love that charge. Um, and then speaking of where I like recharge, um, the, the one thing that I talk about in the book that I talk very openly about in my activism as well, is that 
my daughter is um, a recipient of New Jersey Medicaid. She has, um, her disabilities are so significant that she's part of this managed long-term social services program. And so her level of care is that she needs a skilled nurse to attend to her um, almost all day. And so through the New Jersey Medicaid program, we're allotted 16 hours of private duty nursing care a day. So that pretty much means all day while we're working and my husband and I, and then overnight while we're sleeping. And more than anything else, that has saved me because I wouldn't have any support to work. I wouldn't be able to sleep. Um, and I would be worried all the time, frankly, about her because she is, um, her level of care is so significant that, you know, she has a hospital bed. She has, you know, oxygen support. She has all this um, specific equipment and then she has a feeding tube and all these things. So it's a pretty high level of care. And so having that incredible level of support. Um, and in fact, the, the nurses are thanked by name in the introduction, the acknowledgements to the book, because I say without them, I couldn't have written the book. So one of the things that I work for as an activist is um, with the hope that we can have such comprehensive care in every state. We don't have it. Um, across the nation, which means actually that like my family can't um, probably shouldn't move out of the state of New Jersey. Like even if there are a couple states where we could maybe get the same services, it's no guarantee and it takes forever sometimes to get these services and all that. So I really believe that these services are instrumental in the flourishing of disabled people. And that's something that I experienced personally, like watching her um be able to learn because she is healthy, um, which is something that wouldn't be possible if she didn't have that level of support. So yeah, it's kind of, um, it, it's the thing that like makes it possible for me to do all the things I do, but it's kind of also something where I um, feel so grateful that I feel like I also need to do something for others. Cause you know, when I think about that not every family has this. And it's really kind of the luck of like where you're born and obviously the politics of your area and that sort of thing. Um, it, it really empowers me to kind of, to keep advocating. Yeah. For a world in which just like, we all have the support that we need to flourish. And I think to me, that's also part of my definition of justice is like this, human flourishing, like, and that we would see it in all of these different forms. Um, so yeah, so I feel like I'm flourishing because my daughter has that incredible support. And like, I literally trust these people with her life. <laughs> and they care for her with, you know, like, like this teacher, like all these people on her team, they go so above and beyond like what they even need to do. So it's not even just like, um, the physical care, right? It's the peace of mind that somebody like loves your child. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and values them too, which is wonderful. Any questions? We got a couple. Um, for someone who's had the experiences that you've had, have you had any experiences where God showed up where it was absolutely impossible for something to happen. And then God showed up and made something happen. Yes. <laughs> um, Would you like to share? <laughs> yes. So 
I, I like hesitate to share this story because it's sort of toward the end of the book. So I'm like, I do want you to read the book, but, um, but, Spoiler alert. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't spoil the book. Um, so when I was finishing up, uh, this class on um, ministry with disabled people at Princeton Seminary, I always did like a panel toward the end of the class and I would invite disabled leaders in to speak on the panel. And it was like, of course, the students like favorite part of the class and then inspired me to like, I moved like the class over to TCNJ the next semester. And we like um, combined classes with this career and community services program that was all disabled, like young adults. And it was fabulous. And it was like, yeah, this, this is way better, you know, like, why are we in this classroom? But anyway, so because we hadn't gotten there yet, we did this, this panel. And um, it was, you know, a, a chaplain um, who has cerebral palsy and um, uh, a student of mine who is um, a leader in the deaf church who's deaf. Um, and I'm trying to remember, oh, another student of mine who is a pastor um, who is is black and has cerebral palsy and is in a wheelchair. And then this is I asked um, Morgan, um, who is the daughter of the woman who started one of the joyful noise services that I was talking about. It's her daughter. And um, Morgan, over the last couple of years, I think she's 13 now, um, has been diagnosed with a mood disorder. Um, her brother Jaden has autism and she's kind of always been like the outspoken activist in the family. Um, but she was diagnosed recently with a mood disorder and has really, had really been struggling, but I invited her to speak on the panel because, um, I think she has a prophetic voice <laughs> for the church to hear. So, you know, this panel shows up and there's like one, I think she's like 11 at the time. So there's one 11 year old and then a bunch of adults in ministry. And so, you know, when it got to um, Morgan, she was really nervous and, um, but she, she did absolutely amazing. Um, and one of the other things that I forgot is that on the panel as well was a young woman named Bailey and she's in, in the book and um, Bailey is going to be a pastor and, um, has bipolar disorder. So if you know, like when children are diagnosed with mood disorders, typically if as they become an adult, they're diagnosed with bipolar. So um, Bailey has bipolar. So when it got to, so Morgan did a great job. Everybody's like typing in the chat because this is on Zoom, like Morgan for president because she's just so vibrant in her um, activism for disabled people. So anyway, she's sharing her story. And then Bailey goes and Bailey talks about um, being bipolar. And I could see Morgan, it always gives me goosebumps. I could see Morgan like, poking at her mom and like saying something, but she was on mute and I couldn't hear it. So after the class, um, Bailey emails me and she's like, you know, thank you so much for that opportunity to share my story. She said, I was particularly touched by Morgan. And she said, thank you for being um, the type of professor that is willing to receive leadership from everyone, even like a child. Um, and, but that, you know, Bailey didn't know anything about Morgan's diagnosis because Morgan didn't feel comfortable sharing that. And then I got an email from Morgan's mom being like, you know, it just like really chokes me up being like, Morgan, when Bailey spoke, Morgan said to me, mom, she's just like me. Maybe I can go to seminary someday. So this is like, I did not orchestrate this like I did not have this in mind I wasn't like oh Morgan needs to hear from Bailey and like Bailey needs to hear from Morgan <laughs> but this 
like again in terms of the spirit moving and like connecting these two women who don't see themselves represented right in leadership and ministry and like so I talk about in the end of the book how a lot of disabled people are looking around for mirrors and that's what Bailey always called it she said growing up like I didn't have a mirror I didn't have anybody who looked like me in ministry who talked openly about their mental health diagnoses um and so Bailey became a mirror for Morgan and in that way you know I'm thinking this is the work of the kingdom of God because, um, you know, Bailey, because Morgan is going to grow up right with this belief that if she wants to, she doesn't have to be a pastor. I think she'd be a fabulous one. She can be a pastor. Um, so yeah. So in that final chapter, I'm talking about mirrors, but there's something for all of us to do. I'm talking also about it's mirrors and accomplices in the kingdom of God. And the reason I say accomplice is because there's this amazing um, autistic activist who talks about allyship and talks about allyship as kind of like, it just doesn't do enough. It doesn't change this status quo, but accomplice, right? Like you're doing something like a little bit like radical, like you have some skin in the game. You maybe have to get in trouble. So this is like where I go with it. I'm like, I think we might need to get in trouble, right? <laughs> if we're going to do God's work and God's ministry. So I just, um, so I offer those options, right? I, I like, you know, charge disabled people to be mirrors to one another, like that happened that day. And then I charge us to be accomplices. If we're not disabled people, we can get involved too. <laughs> That's awesome. One more question, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure if you spoke about this already, but I, I caught the example you gave about the, the joyful noise um, services you go to, but <clears throat> I'm wondering what your experience has been um, on this topic at your own church. Um, I guess what's been like positive, what's been a positive experience, maybe what you've struggled with um, in relation to maybe just some learning experiences for ourselves when we kind of look inwards, see what we're doing here. Um, yeah, just since you're here about your experiences at your church. Yeah, um, I share a little bit about that in the book as well. I was in pastoral ministry for four years and then like um had I, I just had too much on my plate with my teaching and actually needed to leave my position and then left my position in January 2020 so it was sort of again like I it wouldn't have worked for me <laughs> to probably stay because of the risk to my family so but um one of the the stories that I share in the book is um about this prayers of the people um, moment that we always had in uh, the church that I pastored. That was a very small church, um, probably like 60 people in worship on a Sunday. But our church was um, had a lot of disabled people, um, probably at least 30% of um, the people that attended our church were um, disabled people. And people are always like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, how do you think that happened? And it's like, well, I mean, if you're church has like a couple disabled people and they like learn that it's like a good gig, like a bunch of disabled people start coming, like, trust me, they will come. It's great. Um, so we had this um, prayers of the people moment where we would extemporaneously ask for people to share their prayers. And it was a big feature that congregation had done that for years and years and years. So while I was there, like, I, I loved this about the congregation. And the thing that I really loved is like how our sorrows and our joys would like co-mingle. Um, and it just, to me, really spoke to the like grandness of God, right? That like God is over all of these prayers. 
Um, and then us hearing our hearing each other's prayers, right, is so so meaningful. I mean, it's a really intimate moment that not you know a lot of churches are used to. But one of the things that also was so powerful about this moment is like you would hear a lot of disabled voices and people would speak really openly about what was going on in their lives and ask for prayers. Um, and a lot of our disabled folks were the most kind of vocal in terms of um, speaking up during the prayer time. There's one woman who um, was on disability because her depression was so severe and every Sunday, you know, without fail, she would ask for prayers for her depression. And to me, that's just what faith, right? To show up every Sunday to kind of be experiencing this condition that's not really changing and yet to 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 call on God for prayer. So anyway, to speak to both like your question, the good and the bad. So this prayer uh, time was really important. And once a month we would do communion. And so we didn't have time for the prayers of the people because it would take like a long time. So we would just do like a, we would read a, you know, liturgical prayer, the pastor would read it. Um, and those Sundays, um, a lot of our disabled folks, especially our folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities would be like, we didn't pray this Sunday and would be really upset um, and would say like, I, you know, I didn't get to pray. Nobody prayed and like just really distressed about it. Um, and there was one woman in particular that always mentioned that. And she was the same woman that would come up to the other pastor. And I would always say, I want to learn more about Jesus. I, I want to be closer to God. She was so eager to grow closer to God in faith. And gradually what I realized is like, she was teaching us something that that one Sunday a month when we didn't hear each other's prayers, like something was lost. And so it wasn't that of course we hadn't prayed, but what I think she was reminding us is that there's something really unique that's going on in this congregation in terms of hearing each other's prayers, right? And feeling obligated. And even like, I would say like impinged upon because like some people were really like cantankerous about like, you know, these disabled people are asking for too many prayers, <laughs> which I always thought was so funny because I was like, yeah, I'm sure God like finds that really annoying, like too many <laughs> prayers. But it's like, you know, we get frustrated with each other, right? We're not perfect. And so this whole like moment of kind of stumbling over each other and working this out, I felt, you know, was really faithful and really teaching us something. So I just remember that moment of kind of realizing like, oh, she is teaching me something about what it means to pray. Um, and the fact that like, and it kind of goes back to Jim, your question about like rest and what we value, you know, the fact that like on communion Sunday, we were, we were too rushed to pray. It just, it felt so wrong. So, um, yeah, so that, that's like one of the experiences that comes to mind in my own ministry where I really learned a lot and realized that, well, maybe the service just has to go like 15 minutes longer, you know, on communion Sunday, because like maybe God wants us to have communion and hear each other's prayers. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.